The following presentation was featured at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Roar Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Book Launch, People of the Word, a presentation by the book's authors, Rabbi Zalman Abraham and Rabbi Mendel Kalmanson, Moderated by Rabbi Moshe Shiner. Good afternoon, friends, and welcome to the book launch of the People of the Word. I'm very honored to be joined by my esteemed co-author, Rabbi Zalman Abraham, who joined me on this labor of love. We are also joined by our esteemed colleague, the renowned Rabbi Moshe Shiner, and his co-author in life, Rebetzin Dini, and their beautiful children, and I think we even have their grandchild here, which is super exciting, and Rabbi Rice and his Rebetzin. So let me begin, friends, by sharing with you an interesting thought. British author Adam Jacot de Boinard spent five years researching over 700 dictionaries from different languages, from around the world, culminating in a book titled The Meaning of Tingo and Other Extraordinary Words from Around the World. And his findings suggest that a nation's dictionary says more about its culture than does its guidebook. Indeed, you can tell a lot about a people by analyzing the prevalence and the prominence of certain words in their language. For example, Hawaiians have 65 words to describe fishing nets. 108 words for sweet potato, 42 for sugarcane, and 47 for bananas, all staples of the Hawaiian diet. In Albania, for those of you who were at lunch and saw the trailer, where there was a fascination with facial hair, there are 27 words to describe mustaches and eyebrows, respectively. Notably, in the same way that Inuits have many words to describe the subtle differences between different types and textures of snow. The Talmud employs a wide range of words to describe different types and categories of inquiry, reflecting the centrality of asking questions in Jewish culture and tradition. They tell a beautiful story about the Nobel Prize winning physicist Isidore Rabi. He was once interviewed later on in life and he was asked, who was the greatest influence in your life? And he said, well, it was my mother, of course. And they said, how do you mean? And he said, you see, all the other children, when they came back from school, their parents would ask them, what did you learn today? He said, my mother used to ask me, Izzy, did you ask a good question today? And it was that question that made all the difference. Another telling example about Jewish culture is the fact that there are many words in Hebrew that describe joy and happiness. The Midrash counts more than 10 such examples. To name a few, there is Sason, Simcha, Gila, Rina, Ditza, Chedva. Welcome, just in time. Each of which describe a different shade of joy, from spontaneous joy, gila, from the word wave, which overwhelms, to the kind of exuberant joy expressed in song, rina, from the word song, and dance, ditza, as well as the bittersweet joy that is tinged with sadness, a son, such as when a parent walks their child down the aisle as is evidenced by the numerous nuanced descriptions of joy in Hebrew, despite 
the many humorous stereotypes to the contrary, Jewish people take their joy very seriously. Incidentally, in the late 1800s, two prominent intellectuals of the time, Ernest Renan and Thomas Carlyle, elicited Jewish outrage when they argued that Jews completely lack what they called the faculty of laughter and a sense of humor. Please God, I'll be giving a talk about Jewish humor tomorrow titled The Greatest Jewish Joke Ever Written, where I will be quoting an essay about Jewish humor written by the former chief rabbi of England, Rabbi Herman Adler, in 1893 in response to that appalling claim. But on a bit of a lighter note, they tell the story of a waiter going around the restaurant and asking patrons, excuse me, is everything all right? Is everything all right? And then the waiter encounters two Jewish patrons and asks, is anything all right? <laughs> Which brings us to an ancient question vigorously debated over the millennia. Does the language we use merely express our worldview and values, or does it shape them? Do the words we use merely convey our thoughts and emotions, or do they influence the way we think and feel? As a growing body of research suggests, language does more than communicate our perception of reality, it creates it. Indeed, according to Professor Lira Baroditsky, a cognitive science who specializes in the fields of language and cognition, one of the key advances in recent years has been the demonstration of precisely this causal link between language and perception. It turns out that if you change how people talk, that changes how they think. If people learn a new language, they also inadvertently learn a new way of looking at the world. In the words of Charlemagne, to have a second language is to have a second soul. Baroditsky offers numerous examples to showcase just how vital a role language plays in shaping the way we view and interface with the world around us. I'll give you one or two examples. For instance, in Par Parampura, a remote Aboriginal community in Australia, there are no words for left or right. Instead, indigenous Australians speak only in terms of cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west. So for example, if one wants to tell a friend that they have an ant on their pants, one would say something like, there's an ant on your southwest leg. Hello in Parampura would translate more accurately as, which direction are you going? If you don't know which way is which, you may find yourself stuck both conversationally and physically. She also points out that in English, events are often described in terms of agents doing things. English speakers will say things like, John broke the vase, even if it was an accident. Speakers of Spanish or Japanese would say, the vase broke, omitting the guilty party. These linguistic differences have acute consequences and the role that agency plays which in turn affects the blame and accountability of those involved, even within the criminal justice system itself. Since English sentence structures focus on agents and causality, American justice emphasizes finding and punishing the perpetrator rather than aiding the victim. Beyond the above examples, linguistic patterns have also been shown to shape perception and thought to fascinating ends. For example, Russian language's many descriptors for shades of blue actually enables its speakers to better visualize those colors. In sum, the patterns, structures, and particular words used in each language not only offer a window into a culture's sensibilities, they help shape them as well. Hence the title of this book, The People of the Word, 50 Words That Shaped Jewish Thinking. In its pages, we aim to provide insight into 50 key Hebrew words and the big ideas embedded in their etymology that helped shape Jewish thought and values, and in many instances have led to measurable real-world impact. For example, one could argue that on the basis that the emphasis 
unhappiness and joy in the Hebrew language, as mentioned earlier, as elucidated in the chapter on happiness, has contributed to the phenomenon that according to the Gallup Healthways Wellbeing Index, Jews score the highest of any faith and non-faith group in the U.S. when it comes to happiness and well-being. Did you know that, friends? You're sitting amongst the happiest people in the country. <laughs> One could also posit, as did Nobel Prize winner Robert Alman, during a conversation I had with him while researching this book, that the great emphasis in Jewish tradition and culture on scholarship, on curiosity and critical thinking, as elucidated in the chapters titled Chacham and Rav, have led to their disproportionate representation among Nobel Prize winners. Incidentally, during that interview, he said something fascinating. He says, back in the day when a very wealthy family had a daughter of marriageable age, who did they want her to marry? The son of a family who were incredibly wealthy. And in so doing, they wanted to merge these two families' wealth and consolidate their impact and influence and even their legacies. Today we might call that a merger and acquisition. In the Jewish community, however, when a very wealthy individual had a daughter of marriageable age, do you know where he went? He didn't go to the wealthiest person in town. He marched his way to the Rosh Yeshiva, to the dean of the rabbinical university, and he says, I have a daughter of marriageable age. Please provide the very best student you have. It's a powerful insight. A final example of the link between the Jewish way of thinking, speaking, and being can be drawn between the Hebrew word tzedakah, often mistranslated as charity, and its true meaning as elucidated in the chapter on philanthropy. The great writer Solomon Rushdie once said, a culture can be defined by its untranslatable words. This is a particularly relevant when we think about the word and the concept of tzedakah, which has so much to teach about the unique Jewish understanding and culture of giving. To quote the late Rabbi Lord Sachs of blessed memory, the Hebrew word tzedakah is untranslatable because it means both charity and justice. Those two words repel one another in English because if I give you 100 pounds, sorry, dollars, because I owe you $100, that's justice. But if I give you $100 because I think you need $100, that's charity. It's either one or the other. It cannot be both. Whereas in Hebrew, tzedakah means both justice and charity. There is no Hebrew word for just charity. In Hebrew, giving is something you have to do. See more in the chapter on tzedakah. And according to the author Paul Valley, who spent six years researching a history of Western philanthropy from ancient Greeks and Hebrews to modern times, culminating in a book titled Philanthropy from Aristotle to Zuckerberg, and I quote, it is therefore perhaps no coincidence that throughout the history of philanthropy, Jews have been consistently generous givers and disproportionately so. A survey in Britain in 2019 showed that 93% of British Jews gave charity compared with 57% of the rest of the population. In the Sunday Times giving list in 2014, more than 12% of the most charitable givers were Jewish, though Jews constitute less than half of 1% of the UK population, according to the last census. In the US as well, Jews give charity in quantities far disproportionate to their numbers. For example, in 2010, 19 out of the top 53 US donors recorded in the Chronicle of Philanthropy were Jewish, including, six of the list, including five of the list's top six. The point of the above examples and observations, friends, is not to suggest that Jews are naturally happier, smarter, and kinder, but that Jewish culture as shaped and molded over the millennia by the Jewish ideas and values expressed in the Hebrew language provides a universal paradigm-shifting toolkit and template that can be emulated by all. 
More than merely a thought-provoking read, we hope this book, like the 50 words upon which it is based, will inspire readers to concrete action that reflects their highest ideals and values. To conclude where we began, in case you were wondering about the meaning of the word tingo, mentioned at the beginning of this introduction, tingo is an invaluable word from the Pasquinese language of Easter Island near Chile. And it means to borrow objects from a friend's house one by one until there's nothing left. And this, dear friend, perfectly describes the way Zalman and I would like you to read this book. We invite you to borrow these words one by one and make them your own in thought, word, and deed. Thank you. I want to start by first thanking my co-author, Mendel Kalmanson, and really his turning to me with this amazing vision for the book was a life-changing moment for me. And I want to thank him for that. The time we spent together, the back and forth, hashing out each chapter, um, I don't think I'll ever forget those moments. So thank you. Rabbi Kalmanson spoke a little bit about the anthropological, linguistic aspects of the book, how the language has shaped Jewish culture. I'm going to address some of the more mystical angles. So what's in a name? The verse in Proverbs states, the words a person speaks are deep waters, a flowing stream, a fountain of wisdom. We generally think of language as a convention of words that are arbitrarily chosen for the purpose of communication to ensure that our speech or writing is understood by others. The names of things, however, are of little consequence, little significance to what they really are. As Shakespeare puts it, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Usually, an object precedes its name. First it exists, and then you give it a name. However, with regards to creation, the Torah tells us that God said, let there be light, and there was light. Was the name not only predates the object, but it's the means through which the object was created. A rose by any other Hebrew name, therefore, wouldn't quite smell as sweet. Hebrew names are not arbitrary. They're definitive and expressive of the true nature of things. The biblical word for rose, shoshana, is rooted in the word sheshoneh, that changes, communicating that its beauty is in its delicate suppleness, its softness and responsiveness, and its ability to change, shoneh, in respons response to touch. This is not something we made up. This is um, written in Jewish sources. Hebrew words are therefore understood to provide insight into the nature and meaning of things. This means that a Jewish understanding of a particular object or idea is embedded within the Hebrew word that's used to describe it. In Genesis, the Torah tells us about Adam, who named all the animals. And the Midrash describes this feat as an incredible act that's even beyond the capacity of the angels. Of the angels. So let's think about it. If names were arbitrary, there'd be no reason why this would be deemed a skill set that is superangelic. There must be some deeper existential truths to be uncovered within a name. The mystics explain that our purpose in this world is to utilize our unique gifts of comprehension and of creativity, gifts that are unique to the human race and don't exist amongst the angels, 
to uncover the divine source and purpose of every created thing that is embedded in their name, and to assist in utilizing all things in the service of their ultimate purpose. Before God gave his laws at Sinai, our mission as humans was to bring the wisdom of each creation to fruition by recognizing and actualizing the purpose of its creation which is buried within its name. In God's language, words are portals through which we can discover the meaning of things from the divine perspective. When looking to make sense of ourselves, of our world, and of everything that transpires within it, the key to unlocking this deeper meaning can be found within the language of God's book, the Bible. As mentioned earlier, words do much more than just communicate the nature and meaning of things. In Jewish thought, they occupy a creative and generative function. Sefer Yitzira, the Book of Formation, which is the earliest book of Jewish mysticism, asserts that the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet constitute the DNA of the entire cosmos. The letters, to quote, the letters with, with which God created the universe. In the language of Sefer Yitzira, 22 letters, he drew them, hewed them, combined them, weighed them, interchanged them, and through them produced the entirety of creation and everything that is destined to come into being. Hebrew words, particularly those of biblical derivative, provide a portal into the essence of things. They allow us to glimpse into God's mind, to peer at God's intent, and gain insight into, this purpose, into the purpose and meaning of everything in our world. Hebrew words are thus a key that can unlock the hidden meaning and significance of whatever is called by their name, including its philosophical, psychological, and theological significance. So the purpose of this book is to help us open this mysterious world of meaning. When compiling this work, we search for contrasts between Hebrew words and their counterparts in other languages, seeking to identify the unique outlook that's embedded within them. Another critical factor that went into determining our choice of words for inclusion was the novelty of the big idea that the word expresses and its relevance to our lives. This is more than just a book of words. It provides windows of insight into Jewish history, thought, culture, meaning, and practice. In writing it, we attempted to capture the unique spirit of Judaic thought that sets it apart from its counterparts and from popular society. We incorporated many themes that are relevant to our lives to provide a glimpse of the profound depth of Jewish philosophy by unpacking 50 Hebrew words to uncover their deeper meaning, significance, and insights into life. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. It's great to be here with everyone, with uh, the two esteemed rabbis, uh, Rabbi Abraham and Rabbi Kalmanson. Um, when uh, co-authors write a book, usually uh, you either look for uh, similarities in style or contrast to complement each other's strengths. I know, Rabbi Kalmanson, this is not the first book you've written, but I believe it's the first one you've co-authored with another author. So I was wondering how that experience turned out. Do you see yourself co-authoring more books in the future? And did you choose a partner who could you know, contrast your style or, you know, strengthen your style? Great question, thank you. Um, I do want to take a moment also to reciprocate those very kind words Reb Zalman offered in his introduction. It really was a true privilege to work together with a person of such integrity 
intellectual curiosity, and such a pleasant disposition. So it really was a true joy. But in seeking to answer your question, Rabbi Shiner, perhaps I might quote the book before me. A little quote about what Chavruta really is about. I think it's appropriate. His horizontally structured... You know all the pages by heart. You know how to find it right away, huh? <laughs> <laughs> the horizontally structured, battle-like approach to learning extends beyond the teacher-student relationship and applies to interactions between students as well. For almost 3,000 years from the Babylonian Talmudic academies of old to modern-day yeshivot, peers of students, or chavrutot as they are called, engage in a dynamic process of collaborative learning with each party challenging their partner's thinking to break down previous assumptions in order to arrive at new and innovative ways to understand the subject matter. To someone unfamiliar with the style of learning, chavruta can appear to be competitive and combative. The seeming chaos and ruckus of multiple peers of students yelling across a pile of open books can be unsettling to the uninitiated. However, as those who have experienced the intellectual urgency and spiritual camaraderie of chavruta learning know, it is also electrifying and extremely effective. Notably, the word chavruta shares a root with the Hebrew word for friend, chaver. This alludes to the crucial fact that such intellectual sparring stems from a place of fellowship. Just as in martial arts, where one sparring partner is a trusted companion meant to help them learn, grow, and acquire new skills. As it says in the Talmud, a prisoner cannot free themselves from prison. We are each prisoners of our own perceptions. We need other people to help break us out of our limiting paradigms in order to glimpse a new horizon. Left to our own devices, we will forever return to our old ways of thinking and rigidified patterns of understanding. As Rabbi Yossi, the son of Rabbi Hanina, teaches, those who study alone grow foolish. I think that might explain the <laughs> dynamic between Zalman and myself very perfectly. There's an underlying chaverschaft, a fellowship, but nonetheless, I think we both challenge each other and help each other grow and expand, in a certain sense, stretch our understandings, refine our thinking in the best tradition of Jewish scholarship. Would I do it again? Um, it depends on the nature of the project. Um, this was a particular project of scholarship, and so I think it really benefited deeply from someone as illustrious as Reb Zalman. Some of the other books that I've been writing about the Rebbe, for example, I'm, more, I'm simply really structuring and collecting and hopefully presenting information in a certain manner. And so I'm not sure whether the chavruta element is, uh, is essential there. But yes, by all means, this was a great experience. Um, for me, personally, it was wonderful to have someone who can kind of address a question, a challenge, together with you. Who can two heads on one problem. And it's just like, you know, when you sit on two opposite sides of, of a scene, you see a different picture. But together, you can see more of a complete picture. So for me, that's what the, uh, the, the back and forth was like. It was kind of help, we helped each other fill in those missing pieces. Um, Rabbi Kalmanson has tremendous vision. He has incredible understanding of what speaks to people, ideas that resonate with the heart, that are very practical and, and touch people's hearts. And that was very valuable. My skills are more in an in intellectual skill set, researching, um, kind of developing someone in create, the creative side of it. Um, so it was very much a collaborative process. I don't know that there was so much um, combative style like Rabbi Kalmanson mentioned. It was more kind of both of us battling together with the same text, with the same ideas, with the same um, you know, the challenges that the writing a book um, presents. Just to add, first of all, 
After those kind words, I think we'll be collaborating for many more projects. <laughs> but, but truth be told, this is not our first collaboration, it's our first book together, but Reb Zalman and I developed a beautiful program for our Chabad Center back in uh, Belgravia, London. Um, it's called Bet Midrash Belgravia, we won't go into the detail, but it was then that I saw uh, Reb Zalman's incredible ability to really um, research in an unusual way, getting to the source and the essence of a particular theme. And that's essential because, I don't know if you're familiar, but when you read through the book, you'll see that essentially the word is a launch pad. It's an entry point into an idea. But Judaism, as you know, is not so organized as you might expect, right? If you open a piece of the Talmud, at the top of the page, you start reading. By the time you got to the end, you might have read about cows, agriculture, the laws of divorce, the messianic era, etc., etc. So there's no index of Judaism as such. It's a big challenge if you're coming at it from an academic point of view. And essentially what we did is create 50 essays on themes as large as humility or love or parenting and the like. And to do so, it required uh, a great skill for researching, but also a certain degree of very um, focused thinking and the ability to crystallize something in hopefully as short and as, uh, as, as clear as possible. Thank you. So the premise of the book is that the Hebrew language is unique, it's a divine language, and therefore it gives you a unique perspective, insight into the meaning of any given subject. If you could each give me an example of a paradigm shift in understanding a concept or a subject based on the Hebrew word versus the English word, and maybe if there's even an example of where the Hebrew word actually flips the meaning on its head and gives you a contrary view of the common understanding of the English word. I'll mention two examples briefly. One example has to do with humility. The word humility comes from the, he from the Latin word humilis, which means low, meek, um, whereas the Hebrew word anava comes from the word anu, to answer, to be in service of. So two completely different understandings of what humility is. Or for example, um, the approach to happiness. Happiness is, comes from the word happenstance, perchance. If your, um, your lot in life is a lucky one, then you have fortune, good fortune to be happy. But in, in Hebrew, the word machshava, thought, uh, thought, is the same letters as the word besimcha, happiness. So happiness is a thought, which is very consistent with modern thinking on happiness. In fact, last week I, was, uh, I sent a copy of the book to Mr. Martin Seligman, and he read through that chapter on happiness, and he said he agreed with it. He liked the chapter a lot. He agreed with the conclusions, and he was somewhat surprised that Jewish wisdom kind of predates the work that he and his colleagues did in developing the cognitive theory um, many centuries and millennia before what is today become the, 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 the best practice in psychology. That's a great example. Um, I want to share one um, about something that we think of in very Western ways. And I think that's one of, the, one of the sort of objectives of the book is to show just how marinated, if you will, or incubated conceptually we are in what we would call today Western thinking. Some of, it, some of which couldn't diverge more from Judaic thinking. So here's an interesting example. I'll read just a paragraph or two. To be successful is a universal aspiration, but what is the definition of success? In the Oxford Dictionary, success is defined as the attainment of popularity or profit. According to Merriam-Webster, it is the attainment of wealth, 
favor, or eminence. Interestingly, the English word success comes from the Latin word succeden, which means to follow after, implying a mimetic approach to success, as if success means to become more like someone else or to take the place of another. That's a quote of a different definition. Inevitably pitting us all against each other in a state of perpetual competition. According to such a view, one is constantly comparing themselves to others and measuring their success by how well they match up against them. In scripture, the word hatzlacha is used in different contexts. And one of them, to quote the Hebrew grammarian, Reb Meir Leibush Visser, known as the Malbim, he writes that the word hatzlacha refers to anything that serves its unique purpose. Accordingly, hatzlacha means to identify your own personal path and realize your unique purpose. In other words, the first step towards living a successful and fulfilling life is determining who you are in relation to yourself rather than in contrast to others. Unlike the conventional view of success, which is determined by certain objective criteria, in the Jewish view, success is not one size fits all. God created each person with a distinctive purpose in life, and he gave us each the necessary tools and talents to achieve that purpose. The identification of that mission is what establishes our particular definition of success. There you have it. It's not a concept in the abstract. It's so real. It's so visceral. It's so essential in a world that today is so often afflicted by this you know, zero-sum game. If I have it, you don't. If you have it, I don't. And I think this gentler and really more divine and bespoke perspective on success is deeply empowering and inspiring. Thank you. Um, many times throughout the book you point out how we inaccurately define words. So the example you gave before, tzedakah is not really charity, it's justice. Um, tshuva is not really repentance, it's return. And you have a whole chapter on the word chayim. And l'chayim is a word that Jews use most often, l'chayim, l'chayim. And you brilliantly point out that it doesn't really mean l'chayim to life. Chayim is plural. And when we wish each other l'chayim, we're saying not just a physical life, but we're being cognizant and aware of the fact that we have a physical life, but a spiritual life. And we have to be, you know, wish each other blessings and success in both realms, this world, the next world. And I'm wondering if we do ourselves a disservice um, when we don't accurately translate words because we're forgetting the real message and the power of that particular word. Should we raise our toast and say l'chaim to lives? And which will beg the question, which lives? And then hence the interpretation. And the same thing with, we keep on translating the word tzedakah as charity, but as you powerfully quote Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, that when you pay back a debt, it's not charity, it's justice. And charity is seen as a payment of a debt. So should we try to stick to the more accurate translations of the words, or should we continue to use the vernacular that people are familiar with? Okay, I'll take a shot at that first. Um, the <laughs> I think the problem doesn't begin with the translation. The problem begins with the choice of language, where English is a hodgepodge of all sorts of languages coming together. It's a kind of like a socially constructed language, um, and therefore, there is no way to accurately translate the ideas that are embedded in Hebrew, or in any language that, for that matter, um, to actually translate them into English without losing some of the flavor. 
So I think the mistake we're making is not in mistranslating, but rather in not utilizing that original language of Hebrew that more accurately expresses what it is. Because even in writing this book, we had to make the same mistakes that we, um, that we profess our mistakes um, by translating um, tshuva, for example, as repentance in, instead of the, the literal meaning, which is return. Because the vernacular, because what people are used to um, using in, in our social culture, um, that's what dictates the language that we use. So we're, we're socially um, obliged to kind of stick to conventional norms. Um, to say l'chaim to lives doesn't make sense. It makes sense in Hebrew because culturally it makes sense. And because culturally in Hebrew, there's, it provides more of an accurate window into what life is all about. Life is a plural concept. Just to clarify, I think if, if I understood correctly, what you meant is that in the chapter titles, when we chose how to describe what the theme of the chapter would be, rather than use the actual true meaning of the word, which would leave readers potentially confused before reading the chapter, we had to use the word from the vernacular. So on the chapter of tshuva, we did use the word re repentance, although in the chapter itself we unpack and clarify that it means return. Um, to your point, Rabbi Moshe, um, I actually think l'chaim, which means to lives, but in the way we use it to life, has its own layer of meaning. Because rather than see those lives as disparate or disconnected or divorce one from another, let's take our cue from the Hebrew language itself, which took the word for two lives and uses it to describe life in its entirety in a holistic manner. And I think that itself is a profoundly Jewish idea worthy of our attention. I just want to say an interesting thing. The, the really, I was, I was thinking about it when we were having a, a conversation before the conversation. Um, if I were to go back in time to identify when I really first started to think about this theme and writing this book, it takes me back to my early 20s where I went for Simchat Torah to the Shliach in Atlanta, Georgia. And one of the days of Yom Tif, we were hosted by a wonderful man. I, I think his name, if I remember correctly, Sabi Varon. I don't know if anybody knows him. He was Mr. Hospitality. He would host everyone from town. And as it happens, that meal, he was hosting also clergy from the conservative movement, the reform movement, and what have you, as, a, as, a, as, a as, a, as an effort to bring together various you know, um, streams, if you will. He had above his sukkah, at the very top, one of those, I don't know what they're actually called, but not prompters, but where messages continue to flow across, and words kept coming through. And as you'll soon see, he did this very intentionally. During the meal, he asked people if they had anything to ask, if there was anything curious they wanted to raise. And so the leader of the reform movement in town says, Sabi, everything's wonderful, but there's something that's really bothering me. On your screen, it keeps saying three sayings. Don't pray, don't give charity, and don't repent. How could that be? That runs very contrary to the Judaic way of thinking, and we're coming from the high holidays when we say it's teshuva and tefillah and tzedakah, those very three articles of Jewish faith and practice that have the, the, the potential to avert negative decrees. And of course, this is what we call a gimmick in marketing terms. <laughs> it was very strategic. That's exactly the question he wanted to elicit. And then he launched into the Rebbe's talk, an incredibly formative and foundational talk about those three words 
describing how they have been mistranslated because in a nutshell, each of them conveys a very different idea than the one they really are meant to embody. So for example, to repent in the sort of Christian sense of the word is to so-called be born again or to turn over a new leaf, representing that the individual has become corrupted to such a point that they need to be rebooted or reconstructed. In the Jewish tradition, the word literally means return because in the Hasidic way of thought, there is a pure essence that is always spiritually aligned. You just have to tap into that. You have to align yourself with that point of spiritual innocence and integrity. So teshuva is to return to the land of your soul. I won't go into the other two examples, but you can read more about it in this book, People of the Word. As a congregational rabbi, one of the struggles I find that all parents have when they have a child is choosing the right name for their child. And they'll often call the rabbi, what do you think about this name, what do you think about that name? Now, in this book, you talk about words, of course, and the power of Hebrew words. Everyone in this room possesses a Hebrew name, and we like to use our Hebrew names, especially on special occasions. And uh, if you're thinking about a sequel to this book, maybe you should write the 50 or 100 uh, most important Jewish names and help parents with their research. But what is the power of the spoken word? In other words, just like when I call your name, it has tremendous power in Hebrew. Um, so it's a twofold question. One question is, these words, is there a benefit of verbalizing, of, of utilizing the words as often? If I could use happiness or could use simcha, should I put the word simcha in the sentence rather than happiness? If I'm speaking, this one understands what the word simcha is. And also, how does that transition to our Hebrew names and the importance of utilizing our Hebrew names versus our secular English names? Two very good questions. Um... So in the, first, the first one, there is an actual chapter on the power of speech. The Hebrew word for speech is dibur, which is etymologically linked to the Hebrew word for thing, davar, which means that to speak is to concretize, is to make real an idea that hitherto for remained in the abstract or in a more spiritual or ethereal realm. This is not an abstract idea. This was taken very seriously and very literally by the Rebbe. As some of you know, in a previous book, Positivity Bias, I included an entire chapter called Lashon Tov, Positive Language, in which I shared maybe 50 examples, and I could not include another 50 that I had to leave out, of just how seriously the Rebbe took the power of speech. But let me share with you something interesting that happened this morning. Just after I gave a talk earlier today, Rebetzin Sternberg approached me, and she told me a story that happened with her and the Rebbe. She was talking to the Rebbe about an issue that happened with her father and herself, a particularly large challenge, and she said to her something like, I'm really just asking for a blessing for my father because I don't really care about myself. And the Rebbe grew very serious, and the Rebbe said, Such nonsense I've never heard before, which is a particularly harsh expression for the Rebbe who otherwise used incredibly gentle language. Then the Rebbe broke into a smile and said, But because others so typically use this form of nonsense, it won't affect you. It'll dissipate. And we discussed that, and I said that it seems like something mystical was happening in this conversation. In addition to just the Rebbe basically calling her to task for speaking negatively about herself and somehow suggesting that her own well-being was not important, beyond that, the Rebbe was perhaps trying to dissipate the effect of how those words may have impacted her destiny. And the Rebbe did so by saying, this nonsense 
is considered nonsense because that's how it has entered the mainstream and it will have no effect. But we can literally spend hours on this point. I want to share one final incredible story that we included here and then for the names bit I'm going to share, Reb Zalman will take over on the names bit. So this story, I know you're going to wonder about its accuracy, so let me share right away that the story actually was told by the chief rabbi of Tzfat, Rabbi Eliyahu, the son of the former chief rabbi of Israel, Rabbi Mordechai Eliyahu. And you can see a clip of this online. On June 10th, 1982, Israeli staff sergeant Zachary Baumol and his unit were attacked by the Syrian military while on a mission in Lebanon. And a bloody battle ensued, leaving 20 Israeli soldiers dead and more than 30 wounded. Zachary and two of his fellow soldiers were officially declared missing. Zachary's remains were missing until 2019. I'm sure you remember the news. When they were finally recovered by the Russian government and returned to Israel for a proper Jewish burial on Mount Herzl. As recounted by Zachary's sister, Osna, to chief rabbi of Tzfat Rabbi Shmuel Eliyahu, there was more to the story than meets the eye. At the funeral, Osna went over to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to thank him for retrieving her brother's remains. She told him that for many years her family was deeply upset with him for not doing enough to, to, to recover Zachary's body and would voice their grievances regularly. She, point, she continued, one day we decided as a family to stop speaking negatively about you and instead try to view you more favorably. We realized that there were things we didn't know, that the situation was complex, and that for a country to request a favor from another country, a lot of political maneuvering is required, and surely there were greater issues on the national agenda than the retrieval of Zachary's body. Netanyahu was visibly shaken. He told her that Israel had been instrumental in helping Russia avoid a terrorist attack. Knowing that the day would come when the Russians would repay the favor, he sat with his cabinet, and he made a list of 50 possible things that were important to Israel from a strategic point of view. They then condensed the list to three items. Needless to say, Zachary's remains were not on the list. When the time came, Netanyahu sat down with the Russian president, and when Netanyahu was asked how Russia could repay Israel, despite having the list of three things in hand, inexplicably, the cause of Zachary Baumol kept coming to his mind. He told Putin about Zachary, and the surprised president asked why something that happened so long ago mattered so much to Israel. Netanyahu replied to the Jewish people, proper burial is of great importance. The president replied that if it was that important, he would make sure it was done, and moreover, moved by the depth of care that the Jewish people have for each other, he offered Israel another favor, saying this one was on him. And if you remember the pictures in the media, he gave the remains of Zachary Bamel a state funeral in Russia before the body was flown back to Israel. So moved was he. This story highlights the power of speech. Just as Lashon Hara draws forth the negative traits within a person, even if they're not present to hear them spoken, so too, and as the Rebbe would say often, and much more so when positive words are spoken, the words themselves, even if unheard by the subject, manifest and reveal their inner good qualities. I'd like to point out that every single of the 50, one of the 50 words includes a story afterwards to illustrate that point. That is in addition to the many stories cited within each chapter to illustrate the point. Um, I want to read from you a quote from the very end of the chapter on speech. It's a quote from the poet Emily Dickinson. She said, a word is dead when it is said, some say. I say it just begins to live that day. And we bring an example over here um, to suggest that perhaps the reason why 
um, both Newton and Leibniz, both independently are, are, are credited with discovering calculus at the same time, is because of this idea, this phenomenon, that once you bring something, you articulate it in this world, it comes into being and it's available there for other people to access. With regards to names, um, there's a fascinating chapter on names. It discusses the significance of a person's name, how the word name represents the two middle letters of the word neshama. So you really get to the heart of one's soul through their name. In fact, the word shamo, his name, has the same um, numerical value as the word sinor, a channel. As the name is the channel through which a person's qualities are, are brought into this world. And the, the Talmud actually brings a practical example of this, how the, there were some sages in the Talmud that weren't sure to, um, to whether they should trust a guy by the name of Kidor, because Kidor in the Bible means upheaval. And they ended up being deceited by him. They lost a lot of money. Um, the idea being that one, one's name really channels who one is. And on, in addition to that, we also find that there are ways of channeling the specific characteristics in, of one's name in different directions. So really, it's not like a closed box where you are what you're named, but rather there are many ways of working and developing and expressing those, those traits. Um, you want to? Um, so, uh, just an, an example that we bring over, over there of this idea is that in, in Jewish tradition, when a person is sick, so one of the things we do, we're talking about someone who's critically ill, one of the things we do is we change their name, we add another name, like the word Chaim, which means life, or the word Raphael, or Chaya, or something like that. Um, and the reason for that is, as we say in the prayer when we change their name, that if on so-and-so, mention their name, was, if on Ruvain was decreed that there should be a certain illness and that should end in his demise, then he's now no longer Ruvain. He's now Chaim Ruvain. And on Chaim Ruvain, it wasn't decreed as such. Um, we find in the Bible that Abram's, Abraham's name was changed to Abraham in order to change his fate. So this idea of a name channeling one's fortune is, is seen throughout Judaism. Exactly. And um, again, it's not something abstract. This is incredibly practical. Uh, I just want to share with you uh, just one line from the end of the chapter and then an amazing story. Um, the numerical value of the word Shem is also Sefer, which is book, because your name tells your story. But something that I didn't know before researching the book was that the mystics teach that so correlated is our name and our destiny that after 120 years, when our soul ascends to heaven, the first question we will be asked is, did you live up to your name? Really powerful. Um, while researching this particular chapter, and Reb Zalman mentioned that we include a story and a big idea which consolidates the theme into one or two sentences, I have to say one of the greatest challenges is to find the story for each chapter. It seems far easier than it actually is. But I was looking high and low for a story about the names and how to illustrate this power. And I'm talking to a, a person I'm very close with who helps me edit some of our work. And he tells me, Mendel, I have a perfect story, and it's personal. He's not from a Chabad family. He's married to a woman who's not from a Chabad family. And here's the story that he allowed me to include with the names of the family. So I heard this from the person who it happened to. Some years ago, a baby girl was born to Rabbi Aryeh and Rachel Trugman. 
three weeks before her due date. Due to her premature birth, the baby had some health complications and had to stay in the hospital. Her parents waited anxiously in the hospital day after day to see if she would stabilize. The doctors were handling the medical care as best as they could, but they informed the parents that they did not know if their daughter would make it. Seeking spiritual support and guidance, the Trugmans reached out to the Lubavitch Rebbe's secretariat, asking them to convey the gravity of the situation to the Rebbe. The Rebbe asked if the couple had given their daughter a name yet. Rabbi Aryeh replied that they had put off naming the daughter until they could do the ceremony properly in the synagogue. The Rebbe instructed Rabbi Aryeh not to wait, but to give his daughter a name immediately. This, the Rebbe explained, would help tether her soul to her body. The Trugmans heeded the Rebbe's advice and named their daughter Chani at the next possible opportunity. The baby's condition immediately stabilized, and shortly thereafter, her parents were able to take her home. What an incredible story where this idea comes to life. There was something incomplete in that child's essence and destiny that needed her naming, despite not being done in the usual setting as practiced. I know we're out of time, but I just want to conclude with one, thir 30 seconds each maybe just, the book is for sale right outside. If you buy two, you get a discount. But uh, if in a minute you could each tell the audience, what do you hope they'll, the, the reader will take away from your book? What will they gain? I think what we were trying to convey, I mean, you have 50 topics. 50 topics and to include in one book in a comprehensive way is very difficult. But there are some themes that are expressed throughout. Themes that are, I guess, essential to the uniqueness of Jewish thought. Themes such as the disparity between the realm of holiness and materiality isn't as, as big as we make it out to be. How some of our most spiritual efforts are found in, in some of the most man, mundane activities. Um, and I think the bigger idea is that we want people to walk away with this book with a better sense of what is it that makes Jewish thinking unique? What is that unique outlook that Judaism came to contribute to the world? Beautiful. Um, and I would just add two quick points. Number one, in a world where words are used so cheaply and rhetoric, unfortunately, has, create, has created and continues to create so much divisiveness and is used without the proper and due attention and care and love and respect and veneration that words truly deserve, I think this book stands out to shine a light on the power of words and how they not only have the ability to shape how we think, feel, and act, but also they affect reality itself, as discussed at great length previously. <laughs> Special thank you to Rabbi Shiner. It was a beautiful job. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.